Chapter Five, Part B of Roderick Hudson by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five, Part B. Mrs. Light, meanwhile, had fairly established herself in Roman society. Heaven knows how, Madame Grandoni said to Roland, who had mentioned to her several evidences of the lady's prosperity. In such a case, there is nothing like audacity. A month ago she knew no one but her washerwoman, and now I am told that the cards of Roman princesses are to be seen on her table. She is evidently determined to play a great part, and she has the wit to perceive that to make remunerative acquaintances you must seem yourself to be worth knowing. You must have striking rooms and a confusing variety of dresses, and give good dinners and so forth. She is spending a lot of money, and you'll see that in two or three weeks she will take upon herself to open the season by giving a magnificent ball. Of course it is Christina's beauty that floats her. People go to see her because they are curious. And they go again because they are charmed, said Roland. Miss Christina is a very remarkable young lady. Oh, I know it well. I had occasion to say so to myself the other day. She came to see me of her own free will and for an hour she was deeply interesting. I think she's an actress, but she believes in her part while she is playing it. She took it into her head the other day to believe that she was very unhappy, and she sat there where you are sitting, and told me a tale of her miseries which brought tears into my eyes. She cried herself profusely, and as naturally as possible. She said she was weary of life, and that she knew no one but me she could speak frankly to. She must speak, or she would go mad. She sobbed as if her heart would break. I assure you, it's well for you susceptible young men that you don't see her when she sobs. She said in so many words that her mother was an immoral woman. Heaven knows what she meant. She meant, I suppose, that she makes debts that she knows she can't pay. She said the life they led was horrible, that it was monstrous a poor girl should be dragged about the world to be sold to the highest bidder. She was meant for better things. She could be perfectly happy in poverty. It was not money she wanted. I might not believe her, but she really cared for serious things. Sometimes she thought of taking poison. What did you say to that? I recommended her, said Madame Grandoni, to come and see me instead. I would help her about as much, and I was on the whole less unpleasant. Of course I could help her only by letting her talk herself out, and kissing her and patting her beautiful hands, and telling her to be patient and she would be happy yet. About once in two months I expect her to reappear on the same errand, and meanwhile to quite forget my existence. I believe I melted down to the point of telling her that I would find some good, quiet, affectionate husband for her, but she declared, almost with fury, that she was sick unto death of husbands, and begged I would never again mention the word. And, in fact, it was a rash offer, for I am sure that there is not a man of the kind that might really make a woman happy, but would be afraid to marry Mademoiselle. Looked at in that way, she is certainly very much to be pitied, and indeed altogether, though I don't think she either means all she says, or, by a great deal, says all she means, I feel very sorry for her." Roland met the two ladies about this time at several entertainments, and looked at Christina with a kind of distant attendrissement. He imagined more than once that there had been a passionate scene between them about coming out, and wondered what arguments Mrs. Light had found effective. 
but Christina's face told no tales, and she moved about, beautiful and silent, looking absently over people's heads, barely heeding the men who pressed about her, and suggesting somehow that the soul of a world-wearied mortal had found its way into the blooming body of a goddess. "'Where in the world has Miss Light been before she is twenty? observers asked, to have left all her illusions behind. And the general verdict was that though she was incomparably beautiful, she was intolerably proud. Young ladies, to whom the former distinction was not conceded, were free to reflect that she was not at all liked. It would have been difficult to guess, however, how they reconciled this conviction with a variety of conflicting evidence, and in especial with the spectacle of Roderick's inveterate devotion. All Rome might behold that he, at least, liked Christina Light. Wherever she appeared, he was either awaiting her or immediately followed her. He was perpetually at her side, trying apparently to preserve the thread of a disconnected talk, the fate of which was, to judge by her face, profoundly immaterial to the young lady. People in general smiled at the radiant good faith of the handsome young sculptor, and asked each other whether he really supposed that beauties of that quality were meant to wed with poor artists. But although Christina's deportment, as I have said, was one of superb inexpressiveness, Rowland had derived from Roderick no suspicion that he suffered from snubbing, and he was therefore surprised at an incident which befell one evening at a large musical party. Roderick, as usual, was in the field, and on the ladies taking the chairs which had been arranged for them, he immediately placed himself beside Christina. As most of the gentlemen were standing, his position made him as conspicuous as Hamlet at Ophelia's feet at the play. Roland was leaning, somewhat apart, against the chimney-piece. There was a long, solemn pause before the music began, and in the midst of it Christina rose, left her place, came the whole length of the immense room with every one looking at her, and stopped before him. She was neither pale nor flushed. She had a soft smile. "'Will you do me a favor? she asked. "'A thousand. "'Not now, but at your earliest convenience.' Please remind Mr. Hudson that he is not in a New England village, that it is not the custom in Rome to address one's conversation exclusively night after night to the same poor girl, and that the music broke out with a great blare and covered her voice. She made a gesture of impatience, and Roland offered her his arm and led her back to her seat. The next day he repeated her words to Roderick, who burst into joyous laughter. "'She's a delightfully strange girl,' he cried. "'She must do everything that comes into her head.' "'Had she never asked you before not to talk to her so much?' "'On the contrary, she has often said to me, "'Mind you now, I forbid you to leave me. "'Here comes that tiresome so-and-so. "'She cares as little about the custom as I do. "'What could be a better proof than her walking up to you "'with five hundred people looking at her? "'Is that the custom for young girls in Rome?' Why, then, should she take such a step? Because, as she sat there, it came into her head. That's reason enough for her. I have imagined she wishes me well, as they say here, though she has never distinguished me in such a way as that. Madame Grandoni had foretold the truth. Mrs. Light, a couple of weeks later, convoked all Roman society to a brilliant ball. Roland went late, and found the staircase so encumbered with flower-pots and servants, that he was a long time making his way into the presence of the hostess. 
At last he approached her, as she stood making courtesies at the door, with her daughter by her side. Some of Mrs. Light's courtesies were very low, for she had the happiness of receiving a number of the social potentates of the Roman world. She was rosy with triumph, to say nothing of a less metaphysical cause, and was evidently vastly contented with herself, with her company, and with the general promise of destiny. Her daughter was less overtly jubilant, and distributed her greetings with impartial frigidity. She had never been so beautiful. Dressed simply in vaporous white, relieved with half a dozen white roses, the perfection of her features and of her person, and the mysterious depth of her expression seemed to glow with the white light of a splendid pearl. She recognized no one individually, and made her courtesy slowly, gravely, with her eyes on the ground. Roland fancied that, as he stood before her, her obeisance was slightly exaggerated, as with an intention of irony. But he smiled philosophically to himself, and reflected, as he passed into the room, that if she disliked him, he had nothing to reproach himself with. He walked about, had a few words with Miss Blanchard, who, with a fillet of cameos in her hair, was leaning on the arm of Mr. Leavenworth, and at last came upon the Cavaliere Giacosa, modestly stationed in a corner. The little gentleman's coat lappet was decorated with an enormous bouquet, and his neck encased in a voluminous white handkerchief of the fashion of thirty years ago. His arms were folded, and he was surveying the scene with contracted eyelids, through which you saw the glitter of his intensely dark, vivacious pupil. He immediately embarked on an elaborate apology for not having yet manifested, as he felt it, his sense of the honour Roland had done him. "'I am always on service with these ladies, you see,' he explained, "'and that is a duty to which one would not willingly be faithless for an instant.' Evidently, said Rowland, you are a very devoted friend. Mrs. Light, in her situation, is very happy in having you. We are old friends, said the Cavaliere gravely. Old friends. I knew the Signora many years ago, when she was the prettiest woman in Rome, or rather in Ancona, which is even better. The beautiful Christina, now, is perhaps the most beautiful young girl in Europe. Very likely, said Rowland. "'Very well, sir. I taught her to read. I guided her little hands to touch the piano-keys.' And at these faded memories the Cavaliere's eyes glittered more brightly. Roland half expected him to proceed, with a little flash of long-repressed passion. "'And now, and now, sir, they treat me as you observed the other day.' But the Cavaliere only looked out at him keenly from among his wrinkles, and seemed to say with all the vividness of the Italian glance, Oh, I say nothing more. I am not so shallow as to complain. Evidently the Cavaliere was not shallow, and Roland repeated respectfully, You are a devoted friend. That's very true. I am a devoted friend. A man may do himself justice after twenty years. Roland, after a pause, made some remark about the beauty of the ball. It was very brilliant. Stupendous, said the Cavaliere solemnly. It is a great day. We have four Roman princes, to say nothing of others. And he counted them over on his fingers, and held up his hand triumphantly. And there she stands, the girl to whom I, I, Giuseppe Giacosa, taught her alphabet and her piano scales. There she stands in her incomparable beauty, and Roman princes come and bow to her. 
Here, in his corner, her old master permits himself to be proud. "'It is very friendly of him,' said Roland, smiling. The Cavaliere contracted his lids a little more, and gave another keen glance. "'It is very natural, Signore. The Cristina is a good girl. She remembers my little services. But here comes,' he added in a moment, "'the young prince of the fine arts. I am sure he has bowed lowest of all.' Roland looked round, and saw Roderick moving slowly across the room, and casting about him his usual luminous, unshrinking looks. He presently joined them, nodded familiarly to the Cavaliere, and immediately demanded of Roland, "'Have you seen her?' "'I have seen Miss Light,' said Roland. "'She's magnificent.' "'I'm half crazy,' cried Roderick, so loud that several persons turned round. Roland saw that he was flushed, and laid his hand on his arm. Roderick was trembling. "'If you will go away,' Roland said instantly, "'I will go with you.' "'Go away!' cried Roderick, almost angrily. "'I intend to dance with her.' The Cavaliere had been watching him attentively. He gently laid his hand on his other arm. "'Softly, softly, dear young man,' he said. "'Let me speak to you as a friend.' "'Oh, speak even as an enemy, and I shall not mind it,' Roderick answered, frowning. "'Be very reasonable, then, and go away.' "'Why the deuce should I go away?' "'Because you are in love,' said the Cavaliere. "'I might as well be in love here as in the streets. "'Carry your love as far as possible from Christina. "'She will not listen to you. She can't.' "'She can't,' demanded Roderick. "'She is not a person of whom you may say that. "'She can if she will. She does as she chooses.' "'Up to a certain point. It would take too long to explain. "'I only beg you to believe that if you continue to love Miss Light, you will be very unhappy. Have you a princely title? Have you a princely fortune? Otherwise you can never have her." And the Cavaliere folded his arms again, like a man who has done his duty. Roderick wiped his forehead and looked askance at Roland. He seemed to be guessing his thoughts, and they made him blush a little. But he smiled blandly, and addressing the Cavaliere, "'I'm much obliged to you for the information,' he said. Now that I have obtained it, let me tell you that I am no more in love with Miss Light than you are. Mr. Mallet knows that. I admire her, yes, profoundly, but that's no one's business but my own, and though I have, as you say, neither a princely title nor a princely fortune, I mean to suffer neither of these advantages nor those who possess them to diminish my right. If you are not in love, my dear young man, said the Cavaliere, with his hand on his heart, and an apologetic smile, so much the better. But let me entreat you, as an affectionate friend, to keep a watch on your emotions. You are young, you are handsome, you have a brilliant genius and a generous heart, but, I may say it almost with authority, Christina is not for you. Whether Roderick was in love or not, he was nettled by what apparently seemed to him an obtrusive negation of an inspiring possibility. "'You speak as if she had made her choice,' he cried. "'Without pretending to confidential information on the subject, I am sure she has not.' "'No, but she must make it soon,' said the Cavaliere, and raising his forefinger he laid it against his underlip. "'She must choose a name and a fortune, and she will.' She will do exactly as her inclination prompts. She will marry the man who pleases her, if he hasn't a dollar. 
I know her better than you. The Cavaliere turned a little paler than usual, and smiled more urbanely. No, no, my dear young man, you do not know her better than I. You have not watched her day by day for twenty years. I, too, have admired her. She is a good girl. She has never said an unkind word to me, the Blessed Virgin be thanked. But she must have a brilliant destiny. It has been marked out for her, and she will submit. You had better believe me. It may save you much suffering. We shall see, said Roderick, with an excited laugh. Certainly we shall see. But I retire from the discussion, the Cavaliere added. I have no wish to provoke you to attempt to prove to me that I am wrong. You are already excited. No more than is natural to a man who in an hour or so is to dance the cotillion with Miss Light. The cotillion? Has she promised? Roderick patted the air with a grand confidence. You'll see. His gesture might almost have been taken to mean that the state of his relations with Miss Light was such that they quite dispensed with vain formalities. The Cavaliere gave an exaggerated shrug. You make a great many mourners. He has made one already, Roland murmured to himself. This was evidently not the first time that reference had been made between Roderick and the Cavaliere to the young man's possible passion and Roderick had failed to consider it the simplest and most natural course to say in three words to the vigilant little gentleman that there was no cause for alarm. His affections were preoccupied. Roland hoped, silently, with some dryness, that his motives were of a finer kind than they seemed to be. He turned away. It was irritating to look at Roderick's radiant, unscrupulous eagerness. The tide was setting toward the supper-room, and he drifted with it to the door. The crowd at this point was dense, and he was obliged to wait for some minutes before he could advance. At last he felt his neighbors dividing behind him, and turning, he saw Christina pressing her way forward alone. She was looking at no one, and save for the fact of her being alone, you would not have supposed she was in her mother's house. As she recognized Roland, she beckoned to him, took his arm, and motioned him to lead her into the supper-room. She said nothing until he had forced the passage, and they stood somewhat isolated. "'Take me into the most out-of-the-way corner you can find,' she then said, "'and then go and get me a piece of bread.' "'Nothing more. There seems to be everything conceivable.' "'A simple roll, nothing more on your peril. Only bring something for yourself.' It seemed to Roland that the embrasure of a window—embrasures in Roman palaces are deep— was a retreat sufficiently obscure for Miss Light to execute whatever design she might have contrived against his equanimity. A roll, after he had found her receipt, was easily procured. As he presented it, he remarked that, frankly speaking, he was at a loss to understand why she should have selected for the honour of a tete-a-tete an individual for whom she had so little taste. "'Ah, yes, I dislike you,' said Christina. "'To tell the truth, I had forgotten it.' There are so many people here whom I dislike more, that when I espied you just now you seemed like an intimate friend. But I have not come into this corner to talk nonsense, she went on. You must not think I always do, eh? I have never heard you do anything else, said Roland deliberately, having decided that he owed her no compliments. Very good. I like your frankness. It's quite true. You see, I am a strange girl. To begin with, I am frightfully egotistical. Don't flatter yourself you have said anything very clever, if you ever take it into your head to tell me so. 
I know it much better than you. So it is. I can't help it. I am tired to death of myself. I would give all I possess to get out of myself. But somehow at the end I find myself so vastly more interesting than nine-tenths of the people I meet. If a person wished to do me a favor, I would say to him, I beg you, with tears in my eyes, to interest me. Be strong, be positive, be imperious, if you will. Only be something, something that in looking at I can forget my detestable self. Perhaps that is nonsense, too. If it is, I can't help it. I can only apologize for the nonsense I know to be such, and that I talk, oh, for more reasons than I can tell you. I wonder whether, if I were to try, you would understand me. I am afraid I should never understand, said Rowland, why a person should willingly talk nonsense. That proves how little you know about women, but I like your frankness. When I told you the other day that you displeased me, I had an idea that you were more formal, how do you say it, more gandy. I am very capricious. Tonight I like you better. Oh, I am not gandy, said Rowland gravely. I beg your pardon, then, for thinking so. Now I have an idea that you would make a useful friend, an intimate friend, a friend to whom one could tell everything. For such a friend, what wouldn't I give? Rowland looked at her in some perplexity. Was this touching sincerity or unfathomable coquetry? Her beautiful eyes looked divinely candid. But then, if candor was beautiful, beauty was apt to be subtle. I hesitate to recommend myself out and out for the office, he said. But I believe that if you were to depend upon me for anything that a friend may do, I should not be found wanting. Very good. One of the first things one asks of a friend is to judge one not by isolated acts, but by one's whole conduct. I care for your opinion. I don't know why. Nor do I, I confess, said Rowland with a laugh. What do you think of this affair, she continued, without heeding his laugh? Of your ball? Why, it's a very grand affair. It's horrible, that's what it is. It's a mere rabble. There are people here whom I never saw before, people who were never asked. Mamma went about inviting everyone, asking other people to invite anyone they knew, doing anything to have a crowd. I hope she is satisfied. It is not my doing. I feel weary, I feel angry, I feel like crying. I have twenty minds to escape into my room and lock the door, and let Mamma go through with it as she can. By the way, she added in a moment, without a visible reason for the transition, can you tell me something to read? Rowland stared at the disconnectedness of the question. Can you recommend me some books, she repeated. I know you are a great reader. I have no one else to ask. We can buy no books. We can make debts for jewellery and bonnets and five-button gloves, but we can't spend a sou for ideas. And yet, though you may not believe it, I like ideas quite as well. I shall be most happy to lend you some books, Rowland said. I will pick some out to-morrow and send them to you. No novels, please. I am tired of novels. I can imagine better stories for myself than any I read. Some good poetry, if there is such a thing nowadays, and some memoirs and histories and books of facts. You shall be served. Your taste agrees with my own. She was silent a moment, looking at him. Then suddenly, Tell me something about Mr. Hudson, she demanded. You are great friends. Oh, yes, said Rowland, we are great friends. Tell me about him. Come, begin. 
Where shall I begin? You know him for yourself. No, I don't know him. I don't find him so easy to know. Since he has finished my bust and begun to come here disinterestedly, he has become a great talker. He says very fine things, but does he mean all he says? Few of us do that. You do, I imagine. You ought to know, for he tells me you discovered him. Roland was silent, and Christina continued. Do you consider him very clever? Unquestionably. His talent is really something out of the common way? So it seems to me. In short, he's a man of genius? Yes, call it genius. And you found him vegetating in a little village, and took him by the hand, and set him on his feet in Rome? Is that the popular legend? asked Roland. Oh, you needn't be modest. There was no great merit in it. There would have been none, at least on my part, in the same circumstances. Real geniuses are not so common, and if I had discovered one in the wilderness, I would have brought him out into the market-place to see how he would behave. It would be excessively amusing. You must find it so to watch Mr. Hudson, eh? Tell me this. Do you think he is going to be a great man, become a famous, have his life written, and all that? I don't prophesy, but I have good hopes. Christina was silent. She stretched out her bare arm, and looked at it a moment absently, turning it so as to see, or almost to see, the dimple in her elbow. This was apparently a frequent gesture with her. Roland had already observed it. It was as coolly and naturally done as if she had been in her room alone. So he's a man of genius, she suddenly resumed. Don't you think I ought to be extremely flattered to have a man of genius perpetually hanging about? He is the first I ever saw, but I should have known he was not a common mortal. There is something strange about him. To begin with, he has no manners. You may say that it's not for me to blame him, for I have none myself. That's very true, but the difference is that I can have them when I wish to, and very charming ones, too, I'll show you some day, whereas Mr. Hudson will never have them. And yet, somehow, one sees he's a gentleman. He seems to have something urging, driving, pushing him, making him restless and defiant. You see it in his eyes. They are the finest, by the way, I ever saw. When a person has such eyes as that, you can forgive him his bad manners. I suppose that is what they call the sacred fire. Roland made no answer except to ask her in a moment if she would have another role. She merely shook her head and went on. Tell me how you found him. Where was he? How was he? He was in a place called Northampton. Did you ever hear of it? He was studying law, but not learning it. It appears it was something horrible, eh? Something horrible? This little village. No society. No pleasures. No beauty. No life. You have received a false impression. Northampton is not as gay as Rome, but Roderick has some charming friends. Tell me about them. Who were they? Well, there was my cousin through whom I made his acquaintance, a delightful woman. Young, pretty? Yes, a good deal of both, and very clever. Did he make love to her? Not in the least. Well, who else? He lived with his mother. She is the best of women. Ah, yes, I know all that one's mother is, but she does not count as society. And who else? Roland hesitated. He wondered whether Christina's insistence was the result of a general interest in Roderick's antecedents, or of a particular suspicion. 
He looked at her. She was looking at him, a little askance, waiting for his answer. As Roderick had said nothing about his engagement to the Cavaliere, it was probable that with this beautiful girl he had not been more explicit. And yet the thing was announced, it was public, that other girl was happy in it, proud of it. Roland felt a kind of dumb anger rising in his heart. He deliberated a moment intently. "'What are you frowning at?' Christina asked. "'There was another person,' he answered, "'the most important of all, the young girl to whom he is engaged.' Christina stared a moment, raising her eyebrows. "'Ah, Mr. Hudson is engaged,' she said very simply. "'Is she pretty?' "'She is not called a beauty,' said Rowland. He meant to practice great brevity, but in a moment he added, "'I have seen beauties, however, who pleased me less.' "'Ah, she pleases you, too. Why don't they marry?' "'Roderick is waiting till he can afford to marry.' Christina slowly put out her arm again and looked at the dimple in her elbow. "'Ah, he's engaged,' she repeated in the same tone. "'He never told me.' Roland perceived at this moment that the people around them were beginning to return to the dancing-room, and immediately afterwards he saw Roderick making his way toward themselves. Roderick presented himself before Miss Light. "'I don't claim that you have promised me the cotillion,' he said, "'but I consider that you have given me hopes which warrant the confidence that you will dance with me.' Christina looked at him a moment. "'Certainly I have made no promises,' she said. "'It seemed to me that as the daughter of the house I should keep myself free and let it depend on circumstances.' "'I beseech you to dance with me,' said Roderick with vehemence. Christina rose and began to laugh. "'You say that very well, but the Italians do it better.' This assertion seemed likely to be put to the proof. Mrs. Light hastily approached, leading, rather than led by, a tall, slim young man of an unmistakably southern physiognomy. "'My precious love!' she cried. "'What a place to hide in! We have been looking for you for twenty minutes. I have chosen a cavalier for you, and chosen well!' The young man disengaged himself, made a ceremonious bow, joined his two hands, and murmured with an ecstatic smile. May I venture to hope, dear signorina, for the honour of your hand? Of course you may, said Mrs. Light. The honour is for us. Christina hesitated but for a moment, then swept the young man a courtesy as profound as his own bow. You are very kind, but you are too late. I have just accepted. Ah, my own darling, murmured, almost moaned, Mrs. Light. Christina and Roderick exchanged a single glance, a glance brilliant on both sides. She passed her hand into his arm, he tossed his clustering locks, and led her away. A short time afterwards Roland saw the young man whom she had rejected leaning against a doorway. He was ugly, but what is called distinguished-looking. He had a heavy black eye, a sallow complexion, a long thin neck, his hair was cropped en brosse. He looked very young, yet extremely bored. He was staring at the ceiling and stroking an imperceptible moustache. Roland espied the Cavaliere Giacosa hard by, and having joined him, asked him the young man's name. "'Oh,' said the Cavaliere, "'he's a pezzo grosso, a Neapolitan, Prince Casamassima.'" End of chapter 5, part b.